when I speak to those parents at the school gate, they see like BT moving into the city centre and I think that's great. They're like, oh my God, I can get, I'm going to get another job. Like, you know, so there is a degree of privilege in the idea that change is negative. I'm Neil Maggs and this is Bristol Unpacked, speaking to fascinating Bristolians on topics where others may fear to tread. Brought to you by the city's community-owned media, the Bristol Cable. For some people, Bristol is on the rise. It's been put on the map. Big developments are happening and more are expected around the corner. For others, the city is losing its soul, giving way to big developers coming in, running roughshod over local communities. Depending on your view, which may be both or neither, or somewhere in the middle, we thought we want to discuss this, a big issue in the city around planning. So what better way to do that than invite the councillor for St George Central and cabinet member with responsibility for strategic planning and also resilience and floods, it's Nicola Beach. Enjoy. Hi, Nicola. Hi, Neil. So you are the councillor for St George Central. You were elected in 2016. For those that don't know, and I'm not sure I do either, actually. I mean, I know the area pretty well, but St George East, St George West, St George Central, which bit of St George is the central bit? Yeah, so it's, East and West is like how it was before the boundary changes a few years ago. So you do still get a bit of that. People saying, oh, you're in St George East. But essentially, Central is three communities. Uh, Kingswood in Bristol, of which there's quite a significant number of homes that live in Bristol that also live in Kingswood. St George proper as I call it I probably shouldn't call it that but essentially the area around Two Mile Hill Summer Hill Road and then Speedwell so it's a big ward there's two councillors for St George Central Ward myself and Steve Pierce. Compared to some of the other wards that is a pretty big area isn't it? It is and it, you know I think it's important to just identify as kind of three different communities in one ward because they all got their kind of nuances and um, that also they've got different needs. People in Speedwell are quite proud of being from Speedwell and St George and Kingswood that is like three different kind of communities isn't it really like young people sometimes wouldn't cross the packs between those three areas you know yeah i think it's more speedwell into hillfields actually yes it is yeah you're right there's other there's saint george east which is left which is asher craig is that right is that That, east oh mate that's saint george west saint george west (laughs) research all this stuff yeah okay yeah it's confusing now i think if he's confused it's confusing for a lot of people because it does change a lot doesn't it we work as a four in St. George, so we kind of, St. George Labour is myself, Fabian, Stephen Asher, and yeah. we have joint surgeries, and we kind of just present across that, what is obviously then a much bigger patch between the four wards. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, Asher is St. George West, so that's principally the area around the park, but it goes all the way down towards the Nethan. Fabian's Troopers Hill, that's a bit easier to kind oh, of like Hill, get yeah, your arms yeah. around it, you know, lucky thing. So, yeah, we kind of operate as a, as I say, as kind of four councillors that kind of work together. And, and are you living in the, in, in the area? Yeah, yeah, I live in Central. I live on the border between St George proper and Speedwell. Okay. <laughs> in my own geography. <laughs> that, that, I mean, is that good? Do you think that's important for a councillor because, or even an MP, really, to live in the area that they, the ward or the constituency in which they um, operate? I think it's important for me, personally. Yeah. But is it important for democracy? I think, obviously, you need to identify with the location and you need to know the place, obviously. Is it a kind of zero-sum game I don't think it is and I think there are kind of positives and negatives for me personally you know I stepped into politics in 2016 wasn't married didn't have any children it feels very different life to the one I lead today to be blunt I guess and all that's happened since I was elected you know so my kids are now in school my life's taken a different turn again as you become a kind of working parent trying to navigate the world as a family of four in this ward and in this area so I think it informs me it helps me understand the ward and the kind of great things and the more difficult things that people in Islamia cope And quite with. a shifting, a sort of shifting area a little bit as well. Obviously, there's been a lot of talk around gentrification word, particularly around sort of Eastern Greenbank, Southfield. But it sort of nubs into St. George a bit now. I always think that when you go into St. George's Park, and, we, and I tell you, my, my, my kids there, um, it's quite interesting because you sort of come across like old St. George and new St. George in the park sort of together. It's like a sort of cultural experiment a little bit, you know. Do you see that as the next sort of area that's shifting and changing? I can sort of feel it. You look at some of the shops, some of the cafes. It's beginning to, isn't it? Yeah, I see that. And I think I think we're in quite a sweet spot at the moment in St. George. You know, we've got the challenges of inflated house prices, of course. And there's not very few places in Bristol that don't have that problem. But, you know... What I do see is, you know, I live in a proper Bristol part of St. George, I guess. (laughs) That is changing. But, you know, I think it's absolutely great when I see my elderly neighbours down in the shops in Redfield. Great. That's where you should shop. Do you know what I mean? Bristol born and bred. 
you know, yeah. really, as you can imagine, proper Bristol accent, for want of a better phrase. And you see him down in Redfield and walk back up the road with them, and that's great. And so I don't think right now we're in a position that other parts of the city are in. I think the skill now is to actually capture the great things and kind of protect some of those more difficult bits around sure. escalating prices and HMOs and that kind of stuff. And you mentioned Bristol accents. I'm usually a bit of an expert at judging where someone's accent's from. I'm going to have a guess. Are you from sort of Nottingham, Derby? Where? Oh, no. Oh, that's upsetting. Not, uh, no, no just... you're sorry, Northwest. Now you speak Northwest. Oldham? Oldham? No, I'm from Salford, close enough. You're from Oldham. Salford? Oh, okay. Oldham. Wow. Getting there. Ah. When did you come to Bristol? How did that work then? Um, I came to Bristol in 2010. I met my husband, my now husband, who's Bristolian, in, at uni, actually. We both went yeah. to the University of Liverpool. And then, yeah, we just lived in Chester for a bit. thought it was all right. It was really, you know, kind of typical coming out of uni with skin and trying to make get a job and, you know, that usual stuff and going on lots of nice holidays. And then, yeah, we just thought we'd better get a proper job. Okay. <laughs> so we started looking for a job and you know, the opportunity came up to move to Bristol and we went for it, really. So that was, I say, moved back. He grew up in, we actually grew up in the house we live in, which is a whole other story. So we moved, yeah, moved to St. George. Where people come from and who they are shapes their ideas and their sort of political aspirations. When did you join the Labour Party first, just out of interest? I think it was about 2008, maybe. 2008. Was there anybody in the, in the party or anybody in politics that was particularly your hero or political inspiration? No, I think it was when um, the constituency I lived in went Tory, I think. I'm trying to remember okay. And yeah. uh, I wasn't part of the CLP or anything like that, so constituency Labour Party or anything like that. I wasn't active. I'd just like fallen out of uni. But yeah, I think that's when it was. I'm trying to remember now. I think the seat went Tory, and I think that's what made me join the Labour Party at that point. And then um, okay. the rest is history, really. Because local politics was what sort of drove you. There wasn't any people that, you know, their politics represents what I feel or think. or I think... <laughs> As a lifelong Labour person, the challenge to that is, I think, you know, when your values are set around poverty and giving people a good life and unfairness for working people, individual politicians come and go. They're obviously people that I look at and think, oh, my God, you are shaping this nation. And that's great. You know, I'm obviously going to talk about people like Andy Burnham yeah. outside of Bristol. Of course, these people are. And. You see, you know, like look at Labour in Wales, absolutely phenomenal. You know, you see the impact they're having and it's fantastic. And obviously at a national level, I think we've had some, we still have some amazing MPs and amazing leaders. But as a lifelong Labour person, you've got to take the rough and the smooth, to follow the better phrase. My values are set and it's informed by policy, obviously, and it's informed by the direction of the Labour Party nationally. And, but and you wouldn't put people up on, yeah, it kind of, yeah, it's bigger than individuals. It's a collective Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And my sense with you is that you're sort of seen as a bit of a rising star in the Labour Party. Be beyond, I think, perhaps beyond what's going to happen with the mayoral and uh, when we change the committee system. You seem to position yourself in your interactions. You seem to have a good relationship with the mayoral team, with, you know, Marvin and everybody there. But also you do seem to interact with people of other parties or other councillors perhaps in a bit more effective and diplomatic way than some do? That's interesting. I mean, I guess I'm just a people person. I, it sounds like a wet answer. It's not intended to be. Yeah. I never planned to stand as a councillor. I didn't come to Bristol thinking that's what I was going to do next. Far from it, really. And, you know, likewise, Marvin asked me to join the cabinet. I just come back from maternity leave for my daughter, Emily, actually. And I remember him saying, you know, was it too soon if for him to offer me a role on the cabinet and would I be able to juggle that with a fairly mm. young baby? And so, and that, not me for six, to be honest, I didn't see that coming. I was really obviously chuffed to bits to have that opportunity. And that was in 2017. Yeah. But again, none of this is kind of written, you know, the story doesn't write itself. This it's something about kind of getting your head down and fighting and doing for what you believe is right. Just yeah. this kind of stuff played out. It's I get a feeling you're going to want to carry on. There's some people will go when, you know, Marvin, his term finishes. I get the feeling that you're wanting to continue and move beyond. I absolutely plan to stand again in 24. Assuming I okay. let, yeah. Obviously there's a whole heap process between now and then, notwithstanding the fact I have to actually win an election. So yeah, no, I absolutely plan to stick around. The work's not done. There's still a lot of labour to do in the city. And I'm really pleased to be kind of part of that and hopefully yeah. going into the future. And I think you'll find that amongst a number of the Labour councillors, you know, we 
there's obviously this change that we're going to see from the mayor to the committee. Fundamentally, you know, you put your values at the front of your actions and you've got to get the outcomes the city needs. The job hasn't changed. You know, it's just the fact that you're working in a different vehicle now. And so I think we've got to be grown up enough and agile enough to kind of get on. You know, Agile. I mean, that's a really good, yeah. Being agile in politics, you have to be, don't you? You've just voted out a system we've had for now on a decade and over. You have to be agile and you have to be adaptable. That needs to happen under the committee system. So are you prepared to work collaboratively, particularly with the Greens? Because obviously sometimes some of the debate can be a bit vitriolic at times, from my observation. Are you prepared to work collectively with them? Yeah, I think I think you've got to remember why you're in the room, really, to your point about being agile or kind of, you know, being able to bounce back or change from, you know, take a different direction or whatever. I think on the Greens, I, you know, you've got to separate in your mind the reality of what goes on in City Hall and the other offices around Bristol City Council and what happens in that chamber. Okay, yeah. They're two completely different things. Full council and the interesting discussion about in the committee structure, what is the role of full council, you know, is mad at times, to be blunt with you. And to me, it's, that's a small part of the actual machine of what we do democratically in the city. Mad in what way? What do you mean mad? I mean you'll find that members kind of all of a sudden have the kind of memory slip about conversations that have taken place and things that have happened because they know that someone sat there reporting on it. I see. Okay. Easy motions going forward and, you know, it's, and so I think, you know, it's, it isn't where the action's at at the moment. I think a lot of people listening may, you know, may their interactions with politicians in the city is what they either read in the media or they see in social media so is there a sense of sort of you saying people sort of dramatizing things a bit it's theater it's theatrical theater. But to compare to the chamber that's the system that they've stepped into do you know what i mean and so the opportunity which really excites me about moving to the committee system is the opportunity to change that you know to actually get the business done in that chamber not the theater because mm. <laughs> we've got a job to do and you know i was talking to your question we're cross party all the time you know i chair cross party working group there's another thing to obviously observe is there's already loads of committees at the council this idea that the mayor determines everything is cobblers you know i think anyone that follows this in any detail will be more than aware of that so i chair cross party working committee at the moment i'm obviously a member of the committee working group there's all cross party you know and i'll work with anyone if they've got good ideas and they, you know they've got their head screwed on then let's talk and let's actually come up with a plan and so yeah. there's no you know, I think this idea of kind of the hunker down mentality, it's, it, it doesn't... It, you mean what the criticism of Marvin's sort of style of leadership a bit? Yeah, it doesn't, well, it's not, you know, it's totally overinflated. And actually, you know, the challenge and the observation we make, and particularly sort of people like myself, Ellie King, Kai Dud, you know, we're in these roles that are um, very facing some of the big issues that the opposition talk about a lot and say they really care about. Yeah. We get very little through our mailbox. You know, there's no policy, you know, suggestions. You know, it's... The actual work happens outside of all that circuit. The actual work is, you know, going, looking at what's happening elsewhere, taking those European examples, looking at great policy that's coming through and actually adopting that and trying to make that work for the city, particularly in yeah. the climate space. I suppose you could, to pay devil's advocate, you could, that is the sort of role of, you know, opposition, isn't it? Is to to challenge, hold to account, to, to oppose in the same way that the National Labour party leadership are with the government there's business you need to get done and of course that's valuable and important but in terms of the gladiatorial arena that you know this is nothing new is it really this has been going on since time memorial are you talking about me now i'm talking about i'm talking in general not specifically you i guess probably around specifically marvin i think to a certain degree the criticisms he's had has mayor and maybe some of his sort of what they would call like i'm doing quote marks now the inner circle around him that perhaps you know there has been accusations levied that they are sensitive to criticism and maybe don't accept that as being part of the role you know when you're in power when you are they are in power whether they come from working class backgrounds or not and a lot of them do i know you are in power now you are the establishment and i know a lot of those people when they weren't and they would hold power to account so they need to expect it to be done to them don't they yeah i don't think i don't think that's the problem i you know i think there's something around a broadening of the awareness of the context in which we're working. This sounds like a kind of, you know, waffly answer, but I think mm. it's when if someone only cares about a single issue, then that person cannot be surprised when they have to be placed in a queue of other competing challenges. Does that make sense? Because that is not what leadership is. So yeah. 
if you come to us, you're not just me, but you know, if you come to anyone in life and say, you know, here's a load of stuff I want to get done. And I get that in doing that, we're not going to have to do that. Or we're going to have to do it in a different way or slower or faster or whatever. You're having, you're already having a conversation that's got multiple levers in there and you can sort of like, how am I going to make this work? But Mm. when someone comes to you and just wallops you on the head and says, you don't care enough about X, We've absolutely no. Okay. okay. So this is frustrations of people that have a particular issue they're passionate about and want change and they feel that it's not happening quick enough and they don't understand, to quote something that Marvin would say, like the nuance of the situation. I don't think it's even nuance. It's just the honest truth about what else is in that room. Does no mean someone else? How I tackle that is I just actually say, yeah, I get you care about this. I care about it too. You know, there's this thing that if it's not happening fast enough, it's because you don't care or you've just not got the political will. Yeah. That absolutely yeah. is not the case when you look at the constraints and the shackles around life at a local, you know, local government. You know, the first test is, do you care? You know, but then let's talk about how we do it together. But this idea that if there a particular pet project has not happened either fast enough or so people stamping their feet then a little bit, going, yeah, yeah that, no. you know what, that is part of life. I got no problem with that. You know, that yeah. is life on the front line, not a problem. Come and talk to me about that. But you also have to accept my answer, which is not going to be okay. I'm glad you've raised that. I'll do it tomorrow because that ain't the real world. Could those answers? All right, you, yeah, I'll, I'll be really direct about it. Could yeah, some cool. of those answers in response? You know, I'm not necessarily saying yourself, but particularly Mayor Marvin Reese. Could some of those answers be done in a slightly more diplomatic way at times? Probably, I guess. Yes, I suspect so. But I think that's, you know, you're talking about 100 emails a week and multiple, you know, I can't add up how many times we've been questioned about different things at full council or cabinet, you know, at the top of my head. But so yeah, inevitably, yes, because we're all human beings and real people, but we are proud of the city and we're proud of what we've achieved and what we continue to deliver. And yeah, I think that we should all get a bit more on board with that from time to time. Do you think particularly some of the Green councillors that have even accused the mayor of being a bully and of feeling they don't have their voice or a shutdown, do you think they're just being a little bit oversensitive themselves? Marvin is not a bully. Like, I I do not see that. You know, I've worked with Marvin for a long time. You know, obviously what people don't see, of course, is that we ourselves have our ups and downs. You know, what's the likelihood nine people are going to agree on every policy agenda that happens over seven years? It's not happy. You know, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's not all sunshine yeah. and rainbows. You know, that, that book... We work as a team and we get the best outcome we can for the city. I can't answer whether or not sort of members of the opposition are kind of being, you know, being a bit sensitive themselves. I can't answer that. I mean, I listened to your podcast the other day. The idea that the leader of the Greens thinks she'll get told off for doing a budget amendment kind of made me cringe, to be honest with you. I mean, just get on with it. It's your bloody job. You know, I mean, but that's that's me, my, my personality. And, you know, I just think we've got a job to do and we'll continue to do it. We are human Obviously, by that virtue, we're imperfect. And, but, you know, we learn and listen, I'm 37 years old. You know, I kind of sit here reflecting on my time as a counsellor and, oh my God, there's tons of things I do differently. But that's real life, you know, and you've got to learn from that. And when you stop learning, that's when the problem is. As long as you keep learning, then you're going to keep going. Nowadays, sadly, the kind of way in which a lot of councils are funded and ours is included in that is from grant funding from government. So you'll often see kind of small pots of money coming through the system and they go to cabinet for discrete projects or bits of work. And some of that is deciding, do we want to go for that or not? Because do we have the back office capacity to do this project? You know, and and that we are hand to mouth as an authority, as is every other authority in this country. And so and it's that where the frustration comes from, I think, that people don't understand and appreciate that. I've worked, I'm an ex-council worker. I work for the council. And I used to go to places and people would go, ah, oh, the bloody council, I haven't done this. And I'm like, I'm not. And they would say it to me. And I'm like, I just work in like sport development or community development. I'm not responsible for. And I could see at, even at that point, that was before we even had a mayor, had the mayoral system, that people would like to hook every frustration that they have with everything in their lives on the council, this sort of hologramic kind of thing that's, yeah. you know, that Death Star that's to blame for everything. <laughs> and, I, and I think, you know, I do think there are things that are well open for scrutiny and criticism by both mayors. People are expecting this is going to be like a kumbaya moment. Everyone's going to be, you know, kind of sat around a campfire loving each other and agreeing with each other. It's not going to happen, is it? That frustration is going to go somewhere. I can't believe for a second anyone actually thinks that that's going to be the outcome. I think we're going to have a short, sharp shock. I think all of this is going to have a really short shelf life. Let's move a little bit about women in politics. Yeah. I know it's something that you're passionate about. I've seen your tweets around, specifically around issues around childcare, around the menopause, around how society could be structured more effectively and, you know, getting more women involved in politics. So, so for you, why, why is diversity important in politics? I think it's, you know, it's such an obvious thing to say, Neil. At the end of the day, you need to look 
at the people that lead you and they need to look like the city they're leading. And I, as a woman, you know, as I say, I stepped into this world with no kids. I, I'm now sat here with two kids. And you, you can't help but be shaped by that. You know, it changes your perspective on everything. And I get frustrated by the idea that kind of children, these are like women's issues as a concept. It's something that I really oppose. You know, these are just issues the city faces. They do disproportionately affect women. And the amazing thing for me about March of the Mummies and the childcare stuff was how many men were really peed off to, you know, and really making sure that we had that kind of, that male voice in that, because this is a family's issue. This is about working families trying to just, get by and do the right thing and give their kids the best setup in life you know and mm. so the, i'm was obviously pleased to see the amazing outcome for pregnant and screwed the charity that i've you know partnered with on that at the budget but you know you can't help i, I don't know I, you know let's face it it did feel like a bit of a dead cat moment so that the tories could get through a load of their inheritance tax rules and pension rules that you know benefit the one percent and so it's it was a bit of a strange week last week, kind of getting my head around exactly what that announcement looks and feels like. But yeah. let's face it, five years ago, this wasn't even on the agenda. Um, what did you say? It's important that the politicians look and sound like the people they represent. I, I'm just going to push back a little bit at that because hasn't the last couple of years demonstrated that actually the diversity of who politicians are doesn't necessarily have a bearing upon their ideas and politics. Suella Braverman, Priti Patel, Nadine Norris, Rishi Sunak, Kwasi Kwarteng, you know, these are all people that obviously are from minority groups and are they necessarily, you know, more, more understanding to people from the groups in which they represent? You've got to cut it both ways from my perspective. Of course, like gender, race is really important that you've got that. But the other one is class. Look at these people. Do you know what I mean? They well, Nadine, understand. Nadine, she's from like your way. She's a working class skates girl, isn't she? Come on. I mean, go on, pull out the rest then. Let's talk about Kwartang and, you know, and the rest of it. But hasn't a part of the Labour Party and part of what I would call more the liberal left, sort of they're suddenly pivoting because... And all of us have been talking about class and poverty as being the underpinning, you know, real kind of issue in society, period. And then all of a sudden now the Tories have, in effect, sort of triangulated Labour on the identity politics a little bit. We're bringing in a sort of multitude of people of colour and more women in, in, in their leadership positions. Hasn't that sort of exposed the fallbacks of diversity in, in, in and of itself when it comes to politics? You with me? Not really. I mean, I guess from my perspective, I think that I'm not sure that taking the current cut of conservative front benches and the current conservative government is really any kind of model to run a country. So they are, it's, they are yeah, Asian, they are black, they are women. No, I'm talking about their policy direction, you know. Are, no, no, but I'm talking about diversity. Why diversity is important in politics. Doesn't this demonstrate actually it's not as important as what people think it is? I think it's massively important. I don't think, you know, at <laughs> the end of the day, you know, it's not just good enough that you're diverse, ethnically diverse, and it's not just good enough that you're a woman. It also matters what you care about. You know, that is... But Why, but why should... A, I, I get it, and I'm playing devil's advocate here a bit, but why should a black person or a brown person have a greater expectation of what their politics are than a white person? I mean, that's what I was saying then. You know, it isn't just enough that you're of colour or just enough that you're a woman. Yeah, but no, but why shouldn't it be? Because it's important... Why, why shouldn't it be? Do you see what I mean? That's what a black conservative would say, was that why do you think I'm here to only talk about issues that affect people from my own community when I'm a politician that's black. They've sort of removed that layer a little bit, haven't they? And it's it sort of thrown open the debate, I think, a little bit more. Yeah, and I think that that's probably why people are talking about class now, because I don't know, we didn't mean that type of black person or that type of brown person or that type of woman. We meant this type. Isn't that just a very narrow perspective? And actually, dare I say, a sort of quite a white attitude to what diversity actually is no you know not for a second you know from my perspective as a woman growing up in the north i don't just bang on about the north all the time and that's not the only thing i care about but this is about what underpins these sets of values you know as a bit more sophistication how to actually lead something and i think that's true of everyone who's kind of you know whether you're you know as you say racially diverse or you're a woman or gay or whatever you know at the end of the day it guides you and it leads you as a person but it's not defines you at the same time in terms of what you're capable of and what you can talk about or what you care about that's not true but i just think comparing it to the current government is probably not the best benchmark look at some of the amazing local government leaders around this country and look at some of the amazing mps that actually you know day in day out work hard for their constituencies they are shaped by their upbringing they are shaped by who they are and their identity but they do way more than that and I think that's diversity of thought. That's kind of, I, I agree. And it's kind of my point. But also, you know, Quasi went to Eton, didn't he? You know, he's also shaped by his upbringing. And that is a black perspective, isn't it? 
some people on the identitarian left can't get their head around it because it's like, oh, they don't know where to place somebody. And suddenly they're sort of pivoting and saying, no, let's talk about class now. And I'm like, well, we were talking about that from the beginning. Somebody like myself, I've got more in common with a black person from Stapleton Road than I have with Boris Johnson. Absolutely. Do you know what I mean? My, my politics are more similar to that. Diversity in and of itself is maybe not enough now. I think it just goes back to what I said, you know, it, it matters what you care about. And at the end of the day, of course you'd have more in common with someone that grew up in Stapleton Road than Boris Johnson. We're in a city of 91 languages, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like this is about, so I just think that actually overwhelmingly half the time I think People should care less or worry less about what's going on down the road and care more about what they're up to and like how you can do good yourself. And so... So what's most important then? Someone's ideas and their politics or or who they are? I think it's their ideas and their politics. I think, you know, of course we want to see a diversity across the chamber and bring it back to Bristol, but we also got to have a hardworking cohort that's going to get the job done. And I think both those things are eminently possible. We've seen that over the last 10 years and beyond. Just pause the chat for a bit to tell you about the Bristol Cable. We are a cooperative organisation, which means that we have members and we want you to become one. If you jump onto the Bristol Cable website, you can find out how you can become a member. You can pay a pound, £2, £5, £10 a month, whatever, and you get a say in our structure. You can go to our AGMs, our events come up with ideas on stories for the newspaper, guests for this show, ideas for documentaries, anything really. So if you are interested, then as I say, jump on the Bristol Cable website and check out how you can get involved. Back to the chat. Let's move on to your cabinet member responsibility, strategic planning, resilience and floods. So are you directly, therefore, responsible for my good friend Pete Simpson having to get inside a rubber dinghy in Lawrence Hill roundabout doing his little viral video about flooding in Lawrence Hill? And what are you doing about it, Nicola? I guess I am, yeah. I mean, that's (laughs) hopefully not going to be the pinnacle of my career. But yes, so that underpass, you have to wade through, and I've done it myself many times on my way to to St. Paul from St. George. And it smacks you around the face every morning when it's flooding. It's really frustrating. But the task for me and for the team really is to obviously get that stuff fixed this kind of day-to-day routine stuff that you know as you say is (laughs) the thing about tree roots is they always grow back you're always gonna have that problem but actually the job is to protect us from the river raven overtopping in the next 10 years do you know what i mean and actually and that's the kind of thing that feels very far away you know we have had floods obviously in the city i remember cattle market road and down by um, harborside but we have never seen a flood like the one we have to prepare for and so when I talk to communities and go out and talk to other councils and stuff about it, it's absolutely, your underpass is important. You know, that needs dealing with. But the bit we've got to also have our eye on is how are we going to protect ourselves from that river raven? Because it's, big, big picture stuff, it's, it? it's a yeah, totally yeah. credible threat. That's not some kind of thing on the never-never. You know, the impact between the tide and climate change, the city will flood at some point. And the important thing for us is making sure that we absolutely mitigate that and minimise it. Which bit, which bit will flood? We see it already down, you know, I think at the moment there's something like, 1500 people that are potentially liable to damage as a result of a flood in the city today which part of the city i'm mean, going to say some pretty obvious places now neil so you just on. bear with me around the river even let's start at the top end really so you've got st phillips that already yeah. floods on a routine basis and so this idea of a long-term future is really important to the businesses there today yeah. you go obviously down into the center down the harbour side down by the lloyd's building oh i don't mind about that get rid of lloyd's yeah <laughs> let them float let them float into the harbour that's what i was doing really i was just i was setting up for a gag let's move on to planning and housing which is a big part of your kind of remit um so 2000 new homes are being built around white house street in bedminster the target for affordable units is just 20 percent. so this has been relaxed down from a quite a low target anyway 30 percent. local green party council said we do not understand why the requirement for 30 percent affordable housing is being relaxed why do developers keep squeezing such a good deal out of you guys, Nicola, at the expense of affordable homes for people? I think when we're looking at this, how to build a place in the city, you know, there's some realities that we haven't really felt yet in this city. And you can see it by the fact that we've delivered 2,500 homes last year. But Mm -hmm. if you take a step back out of Bristol and you look at what's going on in this country at the moment, you know, you will see an absolute slowdown in delivery across the country. You've got a choice where you say, do we work with developers to try and make sure we can build a great place in White House Street and we can get that affordable homes? And bear in mind, that number's a minimum. And of course, our options to purchase, we can talk about kind of how you increase affordable housing in a minute. 
or do we does this site get mothballed? You know, and again, there's this idea like, oh, you, you know, you're crying wolf is this, but you just step outside of Bristol and you go to most other major cities in this country and you will see half-finished schemes. We've got one ourselves, haven't we, of course, at Hadley, where the yeah. contractor went bust. This is a really credible threat. The kind of idea, of course, ideologically, you want to sit back and sit there and say, you know what, I want 50%, 100% affordable. You know, every single unit, we want every Bristolian to be in reach of in this city. Of course, that's yeah. what you want ideologically. But at the same time, you have to actually get it done. So what, what's the point in having a target if you can't stick to it then? I mean, the target's there because firstly, if you had a target you always met, probably wouldn't be a target. I'm not trying to be too awkward with that answer. But yeah. you know, one of the realities is that we don't build every home that we see in the city. In fact, although we've got Goral Homes, which has you know, been amazing on site and all over the place, we have to leverage what private investment brings to the city and we have to get the best possible outcome. A really bad outcome is nothing at all and that was one of the genuine conundrums coming out of the pandemic and seeing inflation going through the roof and you know all the challenges we've got now we've got a cost of living crisis but to be fair to the construction industry it's pretty grim out there at the moment you know you've got to have your wits about you let's not be naive of course a privately run organization is in the city you know not necessarily for the good of the city first and foremost and our job is to kind of understand that and meet that where we are and say you know we need to get this right for the city but there's no two ways about it i mean if you speak to anyone in a trade it, you know, whether you're building a thousand homes or you're building one home, it's really quite difficult at the moment out there. And so there is a reality to that, to say, we got to work with you and we got to make this work. But if we want to make great places, it's not, you know, affordable homes are obviously, it goes back to this point about single issue campaigning. Obviously, affordable homes are absolutely critical to Bristol, but there's loads of other stuff that comes with placemaking that's also really important. Take your cycle lanes, for instance, you know, segregated cycle lanes, active travel, new pedestrian routes through places, you know, obviously a great sense of place in terms of having somewhere for green spaces and kids. You know, it's just, it's not a binary thing about kind of profit versus affordable housing. Does it come down to not being good enough at negotiating then? Because obviously it's a negotiation, isn't it? Do we not need to be better at negotiating? For It is a negotiation, but we also have the small matter where we have to prove that this thing's viable. And so you'll see time, you know, and something we really have to try and mitigate against, and not, you know, talking to people who do the kind of more regulatory side of planning, is one of the worst outcomes you can also get is that, using your words, you negotiate hard, something gets turned down for a better phrase, they take you to appeal and they win. And not only do they win, for a poorer scheme, they also take you to court for your costs. So the council has to pay out their costs as well. So you've got to be, you know, there's just, this is the reality of it is the whole time it is a negotiation, but the way the current national planning system is set up means that actually you can take it so far, but if the scheme is otherwise sound in the eyes of an outside inspector, you know that, you know, you kind of just got to work with the system we've got and we've got to get the best possible outcome and so having that so are they threatened to walk away is that what happens almost you know that, that we, well we'll just go somewhere else and do it is that what they have threatened to do i think if i can just pause you for a second i think one of the things we need to be really clear about is when we say they we're talking about private sector house builders just like any other group of people in the world they ain't all the same so yeah you get some absolute pains in the ass frankly to be blunt and then on the other side of that, we genuinely work in partnership with some really good developers in the city. And so I think, you know, but even baked within that are those tensions. And as a shareholder-led organisation, they've got a different set of priorities to us. And so our challenge is to work with them and get the best possible outcome for the city. You know, White House Street being led by the community and action for Greater Bedminster, you know, really learning those lessons from Bedminster Green. And there's another, you know, to the point earlier about do you learn as you go? Mm getting action for Greater Bedminster in on that project and then doing a really bottom-up community manifesto of what a great place looks like for that part of the city, led by people that live there. It's been amazing, a fant- an amazing experience for me to be involved in. And I've learned, you know, every time I speak to them, you learn something new. And it's great. That's the whole point of it. The planning process in general in the city is sort of stacked in favour of developers. You know, as you said, there are often legal connotations to this stuff. I think the main concern I think a lot of people probably have is um, what role that people in their own communities can play in the sort of rapidly changing face of the city. How can we involve people in that process more? Would you encourage more community groups to galvanise and more grassroots organisations to lobby and to push? Would that be something as a Labour administration moving forward you would like to see more of? Yeah, I mean, just before we go any further, I think we ain't short of groups that are galvanised and campaigning Neil and Bristol. Yeah, that's <laughs> point. Quite yeah. getting involved in a lot of that yeah. across the board. Here. But they often are people, they often are organisations, you know, as, great, as good as what they do and they are great, so I'm not digging them out, that may sort of move into different areas. I'm sort of talking about 
you know, residents of a particular part of the city that know something's coming that are sort of organised and galvanised. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think there's a spectrum on that as well. You know, you've got the people that kind of, I guess, active bystanders want to get involved, want to understand it. But the crux of all of this is about the reaction to change. You know, when I speak to people on the doorstep in my ward and I'm talking about like the area around Temple Meads and what they see, a lot of, you know, big industries in this city, as I'm sure you're aware, insurance, working on kind of a solicitor's firms and that kind of legal services, but maybe at a more entry level position. When I speak to those people or parents at the school gate, they see like BT moving into the city centre and I think that's great. They're like, oh my God, I can get, I'm going to get another job. Like, you know, so this idea of kind of change necessarily being a threat is not a universally held view. You know, there is a degree of privilege in the idea that kind of change is negative. For many Bristolians in this city, they see the city now. I mean, you look back 20 years ago, I got a cracking picture of, of the harbour side before it was done. You know, we have come a long way before my time, way before Marvin's time. Obviously, Marvin was probably a kid at the time. You look at that change this city's been on in 20 years. And, you know, that is a massive reason for hope and positivity. And- I've had conversations with people who said it on this show or just in general out and about that they some feel that this administration is sort of selling the soul of the city to big developers. How would you respond to that? Give me a single example. You know, so I got the same thing where people say, oh, you're building on green spaces. Give me a single example. Tell me a single example where there's a front door that is opened on a green space in this city. Well, it's not me that said it. It's like other people have said it to me. But I, So you wouldn't, you would, you would kick back against that. There's, you don't see any example where that has happened. Well, I'm, I'm sat here now. You know, obviously there is the challenge of that and that's where the new local plan comes in. And But, you know, it's the difference between the risk of something and the reality of that happening. You know, we have an absolute solid commitment to Brownfield First in this city, and we have worked our socks off to get public funding, frankly, to put the enabling infrastructure in that's needed. Because the thing about Brownfield land is it is complicated. There's no two ways about it. If you take out the emotion of it and the green versus brown, and, you know, we obviously have that commitment to green spaces in the city, but you just take that away for a moment and look at the complexity it is sat there. You know, it is for us to try and find funding for the heat network. It is for us to try and find funding for enabling works and new highways, new walkways, new parks. That's what we bring to the table. What has been criticised then? What From you in your position, what specific developments have you heard that type of critique from people or what's created the most pushback? Obviously, the obvious one is the arena and Temple Gate, stuff like that, but other ones in the city. Wasn't Castle Park an example where some people reacted negatively to that? Interest, you know, I wasn't going to use that example. I was going to use the kind of Hadley group, you know, the one on the edge of St. Phillips there, you know, it's a decision made by a cross-party development control committee. In 2018, we brought in a bit of guidance. It's called Air Supplementary Planning Guidance or Planning Document. But that, that, that essentially tried to set these parameters around what livability looks like. And it confronted that conversation about height. You know, how do you build densely in a city where you'll hear lots of people talk about 15 minute neighborhoods and all this kind of stuff well one of the realities of that which you don't hear people who campaign for that talking about is that you need to build densely to achieve that that doesn't necessarily mean height but height is in that conversation you know you you do see that kind of um and what i try and translate is it born out of fear is it born out of a kind of this idea that the city is an aspic and actually if you're doing all right then it should remain as it is regardless of what the wider kind of data tells you about the city's health for a better phrase or is it just, you know, is it something different? Is it the fact that a Labour mayor has facilitated thousands and thousands of homes in the city and it's something to point at and throw a rock at, you know, and it's hard. And, and people, okay, okay, because he was criticised for not building enough houses before winning the, the previous uh, election. And now, and now obviously more, of this you see this as a new pivoting of, yeah. of criticism, just well, trying to find something to push at. Yeah? You notice now in that 2021 election, every major party had house building targets. Where are they going to put those homes? You know, this if Sandy and I get on with Sandy really well as a side point, but if Sandy had won that mayoral election, where was he going to put his two thousand homes? Because I tell mm. you, they wouldn't have been on a green field. I'm assuming. So you know, you've got these realities, haven't you? But of course, if you're in opposition in perpetuity, you don't have to confront that. You can just sit there and say, "Oh, I don't like that," and "I don't like that." We'll see that how this develops under the committee system. How that will look, and it will be interesting to revisit that kind of stuff. You mentioned students. Obviously, student houses, Bristol University in particular, sort of expanding. We've got a new 16-storey block going up around sort of Temple Meads area. Do you have any concerns about whether the university or even the sort of student sort of population benefits the city? Is there a danger that we're sort of, you know, leaning a little bit too far that way? Or is this just a good thing for Bristol? I mean, I think this is probably one of the biggest lessons I've had really since taking this role on is I did very little exposure to higher education other than myself being a student. And so actually trying to understand kind of 
again, taking it up and back a bit to like national policy and what is going on in the higher education sector is absolutely outrageous. You know, this idea of having to attract foreign students, essentially, in order to balance the books, you know, there's all sorts. Of, and I have all my own ideological challenges about the idea of a charity status for university, but we'll talk about that another day, maybe. But, um, but, you know, so it's a complex picture. I think for me, that stepping into this a number of years ago was around, at that time, we had the greatest number of HMOs in the country, in Bristol. And HMOs, so houses of multiple occupancy, you know, they were disproportionately in certain locations of the city, which I'm sure you can imagine where those places are, Cotton, Clifton, et cetera, uh, Sloops Croft. And, you know, they were providing a role of purpose-built student accommodation informally because, frankly, it's just not something we had much of in the city at all at that time. And so the commitment from us is to say, actually, purpose-built student accommodation is where students should live. You know, students should be living in high-quality spaces. These are people's kids and grandkids, you know. It's a real dehumanising of students that goes on in the city. I'm sure it's the same in other places. I know it's the same in Basque. I've been spoken yeah. to my peers over there. But, you know, these are, these are people's kids. They're real people. And actually having healthy, happy experiences in the city is super important. That cannot be at the expense of building new houses. We need both those things to happen. But what we do need to do is at the same time as forward, you know, as I say, forward facing building houses and PBSA, it's called purpose-built student accommodation. Mm. We also need to look at our, the other 98%, the rest of the homes in the city and put the right controls in place to stop and minimise the amount of homes being converted into HMOs. Mm. Those family houses around Totterdown, Bedminster, Southfield, you know, these kind of places are on the fringe of the inner city. Yeah, they're already surpassing kind of 10, 15, 20% of those homes being HMOs and we need to stop that. So we brought... Is there a danger of just putting too many students like central though, that it sort of changes the entire demographic and there needs to be perhaps, you know, spread out in other parts of the city as well? There is a risk of that and that's really where the local plan kicks in. So in the local plan that we put out in 2019 and the one we're going to publish in the next few months, we've got this idea of kind of a... It's a, it's a Sounds a bit negative word, really, a cap, which you yeah. know, if you can think of a better word for that, I'm all ears, but essentially a kind of a limit on how we actually achieve that mix and balance. Because you're absolutely right. You know, the city centre is not a student campus. That's really important. That's yeah. not how this plays out. It does feel like it a bit when I, wonder, when I was wandering through yesterday, I've got to admit. I you know. you and you can say, you know, there's two ways to look at, you know, students bring a vibrancy to the city. Well, let's come on to that. Um, exactly. You know? These are amazing great minds coming into our city we've got one of the highest retention rates of you know graduated students yeah brilliant you know we've got a really young active workforce and you know from an economic perspective what a brilliant position we're in as a city because i tell you mm. when i go out to these conferences and whatnot and i've got people like i remember vividly a cabinet member in a in hull was there and the debate the questions on the floor were all pretty anti-student to be honest with you you know he said you know what i'd love to have that problem he said, yeah. we've got an aging population here. We've got an, a yeah. down workforce and we've got loads to do. So, you know, you've got to think, and I get that day to day, if you're walking down Nelson Street or whatever, and you just feel mm. like you're surrounded by University of Bristol backpacks, you're not going to sit there thinking, what do they think in Hull? I get that. But, you know, it, it, it's that's the job. That is my job is to look at that and go, hang on, how do we harness the amazing power this brings? But how do we do that in a just way? And how do yeah. we keep delivering the other things the city needs? And that's it does mean you have more protests, though, probably. Oh, I love a good protest. Um, round of protest, yeah. This idea that kind of, you know, if you're in a leadership role, you can't run around with a placard is evidently not true, given the March of the Money yeah. protest in September. You're allowed to do that, aren't you? Yeah. As counters, but, as, but the four Labour MPs, I don't think, are. In terms of the strikes, not protests, the strikes. Karen and Kerry McCarthy and... Darren and Thangham, I don't think they're allowed. Two things to that. Is that a bit odd, the Labour Party, the Labour Party not supporting striking workers? Or is that a clever strategic move from Starmer to make Labour a bit electable so they don't get jumped on by the right-wing press as being this sort of loony left party out protesting? Do you know what I mean? Is he playing, is he boxing a bit clever, do you think, by doing that? I mean, the biggest thing that working people in this country need is a Labour government. And, you know, it, and you look at, like, Darren Jones as a great example. Yeah. You know, look at what he's doing in that select committee and just look at the amazing, like the hero of the CWU right now, you know, mm -hmm. the work he's done for Royal Mail and postal workers. And, you know, you look at that, it's absolutely brilliant. And there you are, you know, so this idea that, you know, firstly, the idea of in opposition, you can't make a difference is cobblers. You can see that there. Darren is a living example of that. And that applies to Bristol. You don't have to be in charge to make good stuff happen, but it's a choice. And then at the same time, you just think, yeah, mm. maybe Darren ain't out on every picket. That's because he's doing his job in Parliament and he's doing a cracking job at that as well. 
what an absolute state we're in. You know, and it comes back to things like our budget. You know, you look, you just look at the way things are. You know, obviously my kids have been out on school strikes recently and things like that. And, you know, this change can't come soon enough. You know, we're in an age of austerity. And there was a panorama the other day, I don't know if you saw it yet, with Ross Hackins talking about the cost of living, but also about the lack of growth in the UK and a lot of myths that are being sort of put out there by the Tory government. And what they tend to do is they tend to, at the moment, everything is to do with global issues, isn't it? And this is to do with the war in Ukraine, or this is to do with the energy crisis. Do the Labour administration sometimes blame national issues on stuff that's their own making as well? I mean, I don't think you can really, there are completely different spectrums. So you're taking what, since 2015, what is it, 70p out of the pound of local government financing in the last 15 years or whatever it is. You look at it, you can't hide from that. You know, this idea of like a no cuts budget or the concept of that is just on another planet. You know, just look at just and of that 30p, I think something like 14p of that is on social care. And that is a reality that some people don't understand. And if you see the broader picture of this stuff in your budget, for example, so over 10 years, I think it's 1.4 million is the youth service, youth services budget um, this year. 10 years ago, it was 8.6 million. Yeah. And I think if you look across different sectors, some that have been outsourced, some that are still delivered by the council, that's happened year on year on year. There is a wider picture to this that people don't always recognize and see and is that frustrating for you yeah it is yeah can't you know there's no this year's budget has been the most difficult thing that i have ever sat through if you i thought you might ask me what's the hardest thing this year's budget is the answer to that question it was you know yeah so you've either got that you're always trying to find a way so that's a good comparison on just that scale of change that we've had to weather in the last eight years and at the same time all the same needs are there in fact the needs are getting greater because of the other impacts of austerity and so, you know, a big area for me is maintain nurseries in the city. There's only 130 left in the country. 12 of them are in our city. You know, it's, and every year you're looking at that budget envelope trying to work out how do you continue to get kids ready for school, frankly, in the most deprived parts of the city at, with a decrease in envelope, you know, and that kind of salami slice is painful, you know, <laughs> and so it is kind of, you do get frustrated when you get this kind of stuff lobbed at you about, you know, like you could do more libraries as a good example. we got more libraries in Bristol than any other city in the country. You know, yeah. it's, it's bloody great, you know, and, but that comes under annual pressure. You saw that play out this autumn, that none of that was a fabrication. It was, it was sleepless night territory. I've got to be honest with you. And I know, and that's why I sometimes question my own, uh, you know, my own logic, stepping into this next system, none of that's gone away. You know, like it's all waiting for us. And that's really the message to everybody in the city is it's really important that we're, you know, shoulders back, head up, as I say, and we go at this and we try and continue to lead the city in the way we have. You haven't always helped yourself. That's some, you know, if you think about Bristol Beacon, you think about Bristol Energy, you think about things around, you know, the, around the arena and stuff. There have been uh, some financial mistakes and errors that have been slightly self-inflicted to a degree. Would you accept that? You're talking there about capital projects. Yeah. All of those examples of capital projects. I, my example I just used then about nurseries is a revenue issue. Paying people, paying services. You know, we are a serviced organisation. You know, that is yeah. our role fundamentally is to improve the lives of our citizens. In, and a lot of that comes down to people, cost and services. You are right about the beacon, you know, it's, but you're at a point, I'm sure, you know, this isn't Marvin's podcast, but if he was here now, we'd be yeah. seeing, you know. He would say, we were in so deep, we had to keep going because yeah. the refund come yeah. on. Yeah, I get that. I get that. But, and at the end of the day, I think we've seen the beacon myself, you know, once that thing opens and we should be open by Christmas, obviously, it. But you must accept when someone sees that and they're like, it's 132 million quid and you're sort of saying we've got no money to spend on this and that and the other, you know, that and ordinary citizens, they don't care whether it's from, you know, capital budget or this budget, it's, they see it as their money. Yeah, no. Um, and you have to engage with that. And I think, I'll be, I'll be honest, I'm not really supposed to give my view, but I think you could engage with that as administration a bit more effectively than you have. It's if, if sometimes a bit more conciliation or not necessarily an apology, but an acceptance. I think doubling down on some of that stuff doesn't play out just on a PR sense. Yeah, I mean, I, you're not talking about me now, are you? So I just, I mean, from I think... I'm talking about the administration in general, yeah. Yeah, not I, mean, I think the idea it, of kind of that reflection, yeah, of course, you know, it's... But you're in a situation, as I say, where actually the counterfactual, which you never realise, because obviously it doesn't happen, same with the arena debate. The So the alternative, I mean, by counterfactual, you know, yeah. you... you, you Better the devil you know, isn't it? You look at that and actually, and I think the task, you are right, I think there is a real job ahead of 
taken. Well, can I just say we made a mistake? These challenges. We made a, we made a mistake, yeah, and we're, we're trying to rectify it. I don't, and it's not just a criticism; it's just a politicians thing in general. I think well, I don't really see the and problem. I think where we make a mistake. You know, I've said that myself about Bedminster Green. You know, that it predates me, but stepping into that master plan was the only option we had at that time. That you know, I would have loved that to have gone different earlier on. Of course, I would have done. But all those examples you've just cited were set up before Marvin's administration came in. So then you presented with two tough choices. And actually, take the arena. I was, you know, that was an interesting time for me, kind of coming in. I have my own view on, of all of that. But here we are. And actually, I can turn around and say, us not trying to operate an arena in a pandemic was absolutely the right thing to do. It comes down to the core of asking yourself what a council should do. And that's, you know, really back to basics for me in terms of what is the role of a local authority and how do we best position the city and how do we best serve the citizens of the city? And, and that's that's the debate. And I think that it has always been the debate in the city and no doubt will continue. Yeah. And for you then, Nicola, so do you have personal ambitions beyond being a councillor? Some people, I think, are quite happy to stay in local politics. Others have grander ambitions and bigger visions. Where do you see yourself in that sort of binary? I, yeah, I'm not sure I agree with that framing, really. No? I think All right, okay. Big, you know, that's the mistake you make, isn't it? You know, we need big ideas ideas for the city. And you think it's it's taking these national challenges and you're working out how to translate that for the city. You know, the idea that... Oh, so you can have big ideas as a councillor, is that what you mean? If you're... A, yeah, 100 Yeah, okay, you know, right, okay. Yeah, yeah. The best ideas are born out of council councillor concepts. Like, I think, yeah, as I say, you know, there's this idea that it's a hierarchical debate. I think... Okay, we have with you. Yeah. potential to do amazing things on a national level. And, you know, looking at the energy side, which obviously I've got a lot of experience in, there's phenomenal opportunities there. Would I want to be part of that? Oh, of course. You know, is that as a city leader or is that as an MP? You know, I'm pretty chill about that to view. I think Eva's great. Okay. So you wouldn't rule it out then? No, absolutely not. But my kids are little, to be blunt. Yeah. It all comes back down to, you know, your life at home, doesn't it? And I don't want to miss out. And so you've got to get that balance right. But politics needs to allow that a bit more, doesn't it? I know it's something that, that Marvin has spoken about a lot before, about, you know, trying to, that you shouldn't have to be someone who has goes into politics before or after you have kids. Why shouldn't it be during? Do you know what I mean? That politics needs to have, make more allowances for people with families? Yeah, 100%. But then at the same time, I guess it's a series of choices, isn't it? Even yeah. in this world now, in the role I'm in today, it's not like any other job that exists in the city. <laughs> No, it's already no. a compromise. It's already different, but I thrive on it. I love it. And my, my kids love it. My my One of my, I'll finish here in a sec, but one of my daughter, Emily's schoolmates, saw me on the stage at the March of the Mummies and she's, I dropped her off at school the other week and she said, oh, your mum's famous. <laughs> and she was chuffed <laughs> at yeah. like this. I was like, oh, I'm really not famous. I said, but you know, for Emily to see women, you know, taking kind of activism to right at the heart of the issues that affect their families, I want my yeah. daughter to see that. I want her to grow yeah. up in that environment, absolutely. And, mm. you know, that's, I feel like that's just right for me now. That might be different in a few years' time, but where I am now with the kids the age they are and the life I've got, you know, it suits. And I think there's a lot to give and Labour in Bristol's got tons more to do. And let's keep going. Thank you, Nicola. That's been an enlightening conversation. I've gone way over what I'm supposed to do, so I'm going to get my knuckles wrapped by uh, the producer, <laughs> as I always do. Thank you. Take care. Have a Pleasure. Ta-ra. All the best. Bye. Bye. Many thanks to this week's guest, local Labour councillor Nicola Beach, and we will be back next time with another great topic and a fantastic guest. I'm Neil Mags. Big thanks to our executive producer, Adam Cantwell-Corn, and to our production team from the Bristol Cable in collaboration with Ession Noise. Also, Blue Dot for our music. <laughs>